Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the October Journal Club Simulcast episode. How are you, Ben? I am good. Busy in life, but very happy to be here with you. I know. We've got four articles to talk about again, as per usual, with our rigorous critique. But I'm going to do something a little bit new, Ben, uh, encouraged by some learning I've been trying to do to get better at podcasting. It's suggested that maybe we should give some shout out to our listeners. And I do think this is probably overdue on Simulcast. Whenever we put our episodes out, we often get some nice comments on Twitter, sometimes some comments back on the website. So I thought I might do a couple of shout outs. The first of which is to Susan Ella. When we announced on Twitter that it was our fifth birthday, she was the first person, Susan Ella from Stanford, uh, to congratulate us. So thank you very much, Susan. Uh, one of the other people uh, giving us congratulations for that same announcement was Jerry Gormley, who many of you might know from the U- Queen's University in Belfast. One of my favourite podcast channels. Keep up all of the good work at Sim Podcast from your fans in Belfast. Thank you, Jerry. And then another one of our favourite uh, followers, Phil Gurnett, who's from the UK. One of the best things about running is that I get to listen to at Sim Podcast and Socratic EM. Sunday was podcast 136, and we've already looked at and planned to use the EDI SIM tool by Eve Purdy, Ben Simon. Thank you. Such a valuable resource. So much appreciated episode. Um, you might remember Phil also sent us something when he uh, took a photo of some ducks he was running past as he was listening to yes. the simulcast. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, what a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, then another one of our fans who sometimes comments, Diego Olmo Ferreira. Uh, now, he is from the UK. I've worked this out, but he tweets often in Spanish, so it's a little bit tricky. And thank goodness for translate tweet on Twitter. Um, but what he said was, five years. I still remember when I first found at Sim Podcast. The first ever podcast I've turned, tuned into was Great Another Course and Now What? Now What? And you remember we did that with Christian Crow and Nancy McNaughton, which was very interesting. Thanks for all the amazing content. Uh, and Mark Auerbach, who tweets at Sim Saves Lives. Uh, change requires hard work. We need to do this work at Ben Simon. We risk doing nothing because we're worried about doing the wrong thing. These were quotes from our EDI podcast as well, Ben. Yeah, it's always nice when I'm quoted for something smart that Eve said, which is <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> so I just keep quoting Eve and I'll continue to sound smart. It works well. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've, we've, got our, we've got our skill set here. We know what it is. <laughs> Appropriation. <laughs> and then last, I wanted to give a shout out to Andre Diaz Guio, who is from Colombia. And we actually profiled an article that he was one of the authors of uh, in our last journal club. And we analyzed the uh, virtual simulation or the non-presential simulation that we might remember. And again, that tweet was also in Spanish from Colombia, but uh, translate tweet was just a nice appreciation. So uh, if people do want to hear their name read out on simulcast very exciting i know but no we'd love to show appreciation to anyone who wants to join our conversations whether it's on twitter or comments on the website so please feel free to do that uh the other thing ben a couple of upcoming events for 
the simulation community. I think that is always a good idea. Uh, the first is the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, their 2021 Simulation Summit, which is on November the 4th and 5th Canada time. Uh, I'm doing a talk at midnight, so I see no reason why anyone else shouldn't stay up as well. Uh, the highlights of the summit are things like virtual simulation, some sim-based assessment, gamification, escape rooms. And if you're interested, uh, they have a website, which is simsummit.royalcollege.com. CA. So if people are interested in that, I'll put the links in the episode notes. Along the same lines, New York Sim, our great friends, Grace and Danny and others there, are having their annual Hot Topics in Simulation Education. This is a virtual symposium on October the 22nd. Again, that is USA time. Um, Adam Cheng talking about debriefing, Kate Morse on psych safety, and I'm doing a little talk on five years of podcasting for the simulation community. So um, I'm looking forward to what that's like. <laughs> Uh, if you're interested in that one, it's nysimcenter, C-E-N-T-E-R dot org forward slash symposium forward slash hot dash topics. Or you can just Google nysimcenter and hot topics. And finally, uh, the ASPI group, the Association for Simulated Practice in Healthcare, UK-based, are doing their Moving Upstream, Using Simulation to Improve Systems, uh, 8th to the 10th of November in UK time. If you're interested in that one, again, go to the ASPI website or www.aspihconference.co.uk forward slash. So lots of events coming up and uh, we may even have in our next episode a shout out to the sim congress here in australia so look forward to that oh exciting and very nice lineups in uh, i know it seems to be everything is happening in the next two months mm. well ben we better do some articles did you want to uh, kick off for us yes so the first article is entitled team debriefings in healthcare Aligning Intention and Impact, and it's by uh, Michaela Kolb et al. and published in BMJ uh, 2021. And so this is a practice pointer article, and it's a quite a nice tight overview of a very real and very complex problem in clinical event debriefing. And that's namely managing the inevitable presence of human emotion without drifting into a psychotherapeutic space uh, where we could run into some risks. So the article starts by providing an overview of the common after-action review structures that exist within the literature that we're used to seeing around the world uh, and explores some of the common goals of those debriefing tools, namely to find opportunities for improving patient care and in particular to allow teams to learn quickly and reflexively from real events. And the article then digs into some of the more blurry, less QI-focused goals that could potentially come up in clinical debriefing, which the authors break down nicely into two primary categories, debriefing to learn versus debriefing to treat. So they argue that the purpose of most after-action reviews that we're often talking about within this clinical space is sort of focused on that learning from clinical events, or at least organizational learning. Uh, whereas in contrast, in clinical psychology, Debriefing is often an intervention to reduce psychological morbidity, such as acute or post-traumatic stress disorder after traumatic events. So very much an intervention as opposed to a conversation in some ways is how it's sitting in my head. They name these as debriefing to learn and debriefing to treat. So just to recap, debriefing to learn is when we're reflecting on our performance retrospectively. And also proactively thinking about how to improve our performance or our systems next time. 
And then debriefing to treat is where a therapist would facilitate reflection and sense-making and psychological first aid in order to specifically manage acute or chronic stress symptoms. So as extremes, they're fairly easy to understand. I think the challenge is that there's often a lot of stuff happening within a debrief that's overlapping and complex and hard to name. And I think this is quite a pragmatic response to that. So the authors provide a lovely little flowchart, which is pretty straightforward to read or use in the moment, which essentially describes a process in after-action review where the facilitator needs to assess the level of emotion and distress in the room uh, before proceeding. And they need to consider whether it's actually appropriate to go for a deep dive into a QI analysis if people are too distressed. And it also argues that if people are severely emotionally distressed, then we really shouldn't be going there at all. Um, so instead they steer towards a third method that they call debriefing to manage. And the quote that they use here, which I quite like is, uh, uh, as an example of how to introduce this concept is just to say something like team, that situation was quite intense. Can we just sit down and talk for a moment? And the article then guides facilitators to focus on reactions providing some emotional containment and space to express things and to consider whether people need additional support afterwards. The article and the flowchart do take a strong stance that we've certainly seen before in, in uh, Simulcast about the fact that one should never ever move to trying to provide therapy or debriefing to treat in order to specifically prevent PTSD or providing some sort of intensive psychoanalytic process. And I do think this is very fair and a very good caution to well-intentioned teams who want to dive deep but don't have the adequate training in a sort of group therapy type space. And in many ways, there is a lot of overlap at baseline between debriefing of any sort and group therapy. It's an interesting mix. The middle ground here that the authors argue is that in certain situations, you can sort of switch from debriefing to learn where you're really focused on QI to debriefing to manage. And in box three, they give some lovely tips on how to allow the voluntary expression of emotion and the opportunity to share a sense of community after something upsetting without necessarily digging too deeply into the psychology of it all. Uh, they argue that you know one person's need in the moment after a traumatic or stressful event is not going to be the same as somebody else's. And in particular, they sort of highlight that actually sort of sharing heavily what's going through our heads in that moment is not necessarily therapeutic for everyone, even though it might be for many of us. So they include tips like keeping it completely voluntary, not persistently ask, asking people to share when they don't want to, listening more than speaking, which I really loved, and decreasing the amount of performance analysis included. And for me, I really like this philosophy of just not necessarily trying to fix everybody, but really allowing us to sit in the humanity of a particular situation without trying to force a particular conversation. I do kind of have a little bit of discomfort with the term managing emotion in general. And so I still feel like the, the, the concept of debrief to manage sort of implies that this is human emotion and we've got to put it in a box somewhere and deal with it. But I don't think that's the spirit of the article. Uh, at all. Um, I'll pause Hard to there. know what a better term would have been. I almost feel like debriefing for community would be what I would choose or uh, debriefing for connection. Yeah, this is pretty interesting, I think, Ben, and there's no doubting the credibility of the people who were 
involved in this to be able to make some statements about that. They have credibility in both the uh, psychology space as well as the debriefing space. And I think they have outlined it pretty well. There's so much clarity in the sort of terminology and the way that they describe how these things happen, as you say, in their extremes. I uh, would see some similarities in this and some of the uh, one of the groups that I've worked with where <clears throat> we've had to distinguish between psychological first aid and who's providing that uh, versus crossing that boundary into trying to be a therapist. And that has been a bit of an interesting conversation that I think sort of parallels this. Uh, Like you, I think one of the challenges is that whatever our intention, which is where they're strong on here, the intention of the people in this group might not be nearly as easy to uh, discern. Yeah, agreed. Um, So I I, I do think if we're moving into this space, I, I like that this article highlights that you do need a bit of emotional receptivity and uh, sensitivity to at least be able to pick up or predict the sort of emotions that might come up um, and certainly in the extremes that's again very straightforward it's in the subtleties and the unexpected ways people might respond uh, to something that for some of us might be completely understressing can be really challenging mm. the other other thing I thought and I don't know what to think about it is that this requires a lot of maturity and sensitivity to what's going on in a group. And it also requires, I think, some pretty solid skills at leading a conversation. And I can see many people who don't have the kind of training that these authors do really being scared off the whole thing. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know whether that means something is better than nothing or nothing is much worse than something that's bad. Uh, and I think we're yet to know the answer to this. And in the meantime, I guess human beings just stumble their way through their interactions as we have been <laughs> for uh, millennia. And um, this is one variation on that. Yeah, I I mean, I could talk about this for probably too long. We could fill an entire podcast. But I think um, certainly the way I've seen people play it out is to either try and just exclude emotion from the conversation by preempting that in their debrief script and say this is not an emotional debrief uh which again i sort of have that icky feeling of we can't really separate emotion by just naming it away um and i guess the other thing is that you rely on your systems to sort of recruit and train at least a certain level of um expertise within your debriefing group or uh you find that sort of middle where we at least maybe train people to say look there are going to be times where actually you can't proceed with a hot debrief if you're sensing that level of distress and just at that stage either call for help or consider pausing there and i think it's a good sort of it i haven't seen many other articles really acknowledge this beyond trying to contain it or wave it away was probably my biggest appreciation for it yeah, so uh, and I think that's probably why it landed in the BMJ. It's not in a simulation journal. It's in a more general medical journal, uh, and I think appropriately so. Yeah, I think it'll be a, a good pickup for the readership in there and hopefully a broader readership than just the simulation community. All righty. Well, from there, we might change tack a little bit for our next article. Uh, this is from... Deborah Nestel's new journal, the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. And uh, as you might know, we've done a little episode with Deborah uh, outlining 
the aims, scope and aspirations of that journal. Uh, and she talked about some of the first papers in that, but we've got one here called A Form of Mental Simulation with Significant Enhancements Enabling Teamwork Training, uh, which they're calling VEMS, Visually Enhanced Mental Simulation. And this is from uh, Berku Dogan and a team from the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. And to sort of wind this back a little bit, uh, well, really to give their... Uh, overview, they say that interactive mental simulation approach using a representative of a patient and equipment combined with thinking aloud um, could help rehearse behavioral and teamwork skills without the need for complex mannequin or advanced simulation locations or technology. So winding it back a little bit, uh, mental simulation and mental rehearsal is pretty accepted and plenty strong literature to support its use, whether that's from sport, music, or indeed in healthcare. In healthcare, my understanding of the literature is that more of it is about procedural skills and doing a kind of surgical warm-up is uh, well described. And often, though, it's an individual task that people are doing the mental rehearsal. Think Michael Phelps sitting there with his headphones on uh, before his swimming race at the Olympics. But what this team did was say that we need to add in the team the think aloud process and the visual elements and then we come up with this VEMS visually enhanced mental simulation so to give you a little bit more explanation of that they talk about having a visual element uh, which might be things like uh, ECG or a monitor IV lines and a patient poster uh, which gives you a visual representation of the poster without actually having a mannequin there they also describe what does think aloud mean and they ascribe that to many people use that in research when you kind of get people to describe what was going on in their heads when they were doing something and the process of a team getting together and thinking aloud what they would do in this simulation is how they use it here. Uh, they give a nice little picture of what their poster looks like. It just looks like a patient that would be lying on a bed with some things attached. Uh, and the role of the facilitator is to help the team step through a scenario and a debriefing. And they make the point appropriate to the pandemic. I think that this could be facilitated remotely. So uh, as I said, there's some nice pictures in there. I think they're badging this appropriately as a sort of low-cost engaging team activity that people can do without as much preparation in terms of equipment as we might normally think. And I think, uh, based on some of our experience locally, that that can be even simpler than described. I'm not sure that you need even all the adjuncts that they talk about there. And I'm not sure that you need the long debrief that they talk about there, depending on obviously what you're trying to achieve. Uh, I do think some of the things they haven't mentioned in there are also positives about work teams coming together, having that team familiarity, engendering the psychological safety, uh, which all of which I think are outcomes from so-called real sim, but I think they could get it from this kind of sim as well. So I think the opportunity here is that this can actually leverage other simulation and work. Uh, I think it could be used as a preparatory activity then for face-to-face -face simulations as well. Uh, and I think hopefully the other really good thing about it was it might just encourage some habits of mental rehearsal both for teams and for individuals so um, I guess the big question does it work there's this paper is badged as a practice guideline it's not as meant as original research at this point it's a good idea that other people might like to try that has some intuitive sense uh, that's still useful to me what did you think uh, yeah, I loved it, and I thought it was a nice sort of introduction to the new journal to have uh, something a little more left of field of what simulation is. Um, 
And I think I really, particularly with, it's, it's Flat Maggie, isn't it, that Belinda yeah. does? Uh, I think the, the thing that I love about this sort of opportunity is the chance to take thin slices of a skill and really focus on uh, some of either the verbal or the teamwork stuff. I was a little bit surprised that um, there was a lot of inf- emphasis in the article on the teamwork and behavior stuff. And I kind of felt like, particularly since they were drawing from uh, mental rehearsal and the opportunities it could have to uh, teach a task or a complex procedure within a team-based environment and building some empathy and understanding of everybody's shared roles in that moment. So I thought there was potentially more procedural opportunity as well as that teamwork behavior stuff that they outlined. It also reminded me a little bit of, of the Emergo exercises and the little goobers with your with your picture of each patient going through as a sort of very complex example of that taken to the nth degree. Yeah, and I think it comes down to just being really clear on what you're trying to achieve, having done some Emergo trains myself. You're not short on feeling the pressure, even though you've got just the little goobers that stick on the wall. Uh, you don't need a mannequin to make you feel under the pump if you've got the triage role in that disaster simulation. No, that's right. And I think I was also sort of intrigued in the in the idea of this as a force function for that externalization of one's thoughts. And then I think that is also a very discrete skill that's worth practicing in and of itself, um, separate to, you know, the actual procedure or a particular condition. So I think uh, identifying that as a way to help people practice sharing with the team their thoughts so that they can contribute better to team cognition, I think is a valuable exercise and this might be a valuable force function to do that. Yeah, um, yes, engendering the habit of doing that probably is a good thing for all of us. Uh, we don't want to take up too much airtime in any given group situation, but exposing thoughts uh, that underlie the behaviours, I think, actually is a valuable thing, not just for team leaders either. Agree. Mm. All right, well, you're going to change tack now to thinking about anaesthetists and whether they do a good job of their simulation. Absolutely, although there were, again, some segues into things being heavily about uh, teamwork behaviours. So this uh, article is called Is Simulation-Based Team Training Performed by Personnel in Accordance with the Anaxal Standards of Best Practice Simulation uh, Qualitative Interview Study? Uh, it's by Anne Finstad et al. and published in Advances in Simulation. So this is a qualitative article, with its stated aim being to explore how anesthesia personnel in Norway conduct simulation-based team training with respect to outcomes, objectives, facilitation, debriefing, and participant evaluation. The authors provide a quick run-through of the evidence for sim training for non-technical skills and the conceptual importance of that in anesthetics, and they identify the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning uh, published standards of best practice in simulation as an essential framework uh, to approach delivery of that same training. So their approach here is to sort of go, look, this is a valuable framework that we should be meeting or incorporating into our practice. Let's now assess the Norwegian uptake of those principles in 54 separate Norwegian studies. Uh, Norwegian hospitals. So quite a big qualitative project. So they interview uh, one key person from 54 Norwegian hospitals using both closed and open-ended questions. Uh, Most of those uh, people were nurses or nurse educators. And what did they find? Well, uh, a lot. There was a lot of heavy emphasis objectives-wise on non-technical skills and teamwork. 
but also some goals regarding environmental, procedural and process awareness. There was a generalized acknowledgement that it often comes down to teamwork in the sim. And then some people expressed some frustration at colleagues who cram 30 learning objectives into a 30 minute learning experience, (laughs) which was my favorite bit because I'm all about the shade. Um, with respect, with respect to facilitation, they sort of identified sixty-one percent used trained facilitators. Uh, although, again, I sort of enjoyed that they sort of emphasised there was kind of this paradox between sending personnel to really expensive courses and then not being able to use that expertise afterwards because those people were then busy in clinics potentially because of their seniority. Mm-hmm. They emphasised flexibility and preparedness as uh, as valuable assets as for simulation delivery and found that most debriefers pretty much stuck to their local structure for debriefing. There was a lot of assessment of the sim as an intervention, but this was mostly done in a relatively informal way, such as a conversation about impact with the learners. And some did use video, but several found it to be a technical hurdle and preferred not to use it. The article then proceeds to break down these findings and relative to compliance with the Anaxal standards. And overall, they mostly find that the anesthetic sim educators in Norway do follow those guidelines to a certain extent, which seems pretty good. For me, I'm not quite sure how this article specifically will change my practice, although I do think it's a nice example of how to benchmark what's happening in other countries and reflect on how we're doing locally. And I'm kind of a little surprised that they chose a purely qualitative Um, research method and I felt like it would be relatively easy to report we were doing something well without it actually being the work has done uh, if we were just relying on interview data and I thought Mm -hmm. potentially a combination or a mixed method study might have led to some more accurate representation of how things are actually playing out but I did find the data that they found through interviewing very useful for reflection. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, they did ask the leaders of these programs who may have been a little bit uh, more positively biased, shall we say, but nonetheless useful information. And like you, I I think it's very interesting, the concept of reviewing practice against standards is a really good one and surprisingly rarely reported. So the first thing is just take a hat off to this concept of essentially doing an audit of your practice. And then, you know, classic class from the Scandinavians, um, 51 out of 54 of the Norwegian hospitals said, yeah, we'll be in it. Like, that's really impressive. It does mean that they have got a meaningful snapshot of what is actually happening. Uh, and I think for people who are, I'm not a qualitative research methods expert, but I did notice there's a very nice example there of how to report qualitative research. And they've actually got an example of their uh, deductive code book there and about how they actually went through those interviews and did that so if people are interested it's a useful if you're thinking about setting up code books or wanting to know how to do coding there is some uh, examples here uh, there are a couple of things that like you the some of the detail uh, wasn't to my liking you know the non-technical skills it's a very residual terminology i understand why European anaesthetists are still using that. That has traditionally been the way they've talked about behavioural skills or other things. Uh, The discussion about objectives, I also agreed, was really important and it highlighted a lot of tensions, I think, about whether the focus is the team or the profession, uh, whether if you're doing Sims Insights, whether you really are focused on the system or is it a training exercise. And, And most of us, I think, are not good at creating some discipline around that, even if we write learning objectives with the right verbs. Sometimes we're not still not really clear on what it is we're trying to do. 
And like you, um, the other thing that I found interesting was about evaluation. And I had a few mixed feelings about them being exhorted to do more evaluation and I think there's always a risk that we slavishly follow a standards framework and tick a box for evaluation when we all know that a lot of evaluation is not very good quality and doesn't necessarily guide our improved practice. So I think it requires expertise to do good evaluation, but it doesn't take anything away from the article and the concept of actually auditing practice at that level is very impressive. Agreed. Thanks. Shall we move on to number four? Number four, yes. So this is uh, an article about using simulation to learn about quality improvement. Often here we're talking about simulation as one of the tools in order to improve patient safety. And here we're actually saying, uh, this is an article from Academic Medicine just in September 2021, an innovation report uh, called Simulation for Quality, a Centralised Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Simulation Curriculum for Residents and Fellows. And this is by Jacob Lutie and a team from Portland, Oregon. And so, as I said, they really set out to use simulation and experiential learning to learn about QI and patient safety. That's the explicit curricular goal they had. And to give you a little bit of context, uh, graduate medical education in the US has some very clearly dis- described core competencies, including systems-based practice and practice-based learning and improvement. And and now the accreditation processes require, um, they actually do describe processes in order to achieve them. And in this case, apparently they require some experiential education. So the authors said about, this is a how-to. So what did they do? As we said, a centralized curriculum for these graduate uh, medical education trainees across multiple disciplines at a single institution. Uh, And so the article describes both the development of that and the evaluation. So again, for context, uh, Oregon Health Sciences University has 846 house officers, and I think by that they're talking about trainees in different medical specialties, 84 training programs, and they went through a process of consultation and data gathering to find the gaps. And essentially then they designed a curriculum uh, that was based on some pretty established quality improvement frameworks. And they designed a program that included what they called a flipped classroom, some pre-work reading, some online videos, followed by an eight-hour sim day, which is a fair bit, that again included some pre-assessment, some didactics, and then four linked sim sessions. So they all followed a case where there was an adverse event of an overdose of adrenaline, which of course they called epinephrine, uh, in the emergency department. Uh, and each had a scenario and debrief. And they evaluated these um, according to the Kirkpatrick levels of participant reaction, self-assessment, and actually tested them using some MCQs and some other methods for looking at their quality improvement sort of skills and capabilities. So fairly, uh, before I finish with the outcomes, that's pretty, um, I don't know that's unique, Ben, but I suppose the way it's written up as a kind of core curriculum is a little bit different to how most people might write it up. Yeah, look, it's certainly, I mean, as an innovation, I, I haven't seen sims around this um, critical event analysis before. Have you seen some in other places? Well, sort of done some, but not exactly like this. Uh, more opportunistically, I'd say not as a, like, here's your eight hours on adverse events, but yeah. Yeah, um, so uh, it was quite interesting to me from that perspective. Mm. 
So just to give an idea about what they described as their outcomes, they had uh, 70% of the residents and fellows who participated um, completed some assessments. And unsurprisingly, they got some positive evaluations. People liked it. Um, People's attitudes and confidence increased. And there were things like confidence to report and disclose errors, confidence to participate in a root cause analysis or a quality improvement team. And they also had some improvements in measured knowledge. So does this... Uh, indicate success. Who knows? They claim it's the first report of a curricular model based entirely on simulation-based medical education. But as they point out, um, is there change in practice? Uh, and I would say, how is that integrated into other work? I mean, my risk. I think the risk with all these things is when you separate out your QI curriculum from everything else, you do your quality improvement day for eight hours, but it, is it actually then reinforced with the kind of teaching that people have in the clinical workplace? Uh, the faculty signposting moments when QI is relevant. So we don't know how integrated this really is. And I suppose the other thing that always grates a little bit is, from what I understand, these were all doctor participants, which seems to me to neglect some pretty big opportunities for thinking about how things go wrong in the workplace um, when there are failures of teamwork, communication and understanding of each other's roles. Um, Then the only other... So overall, I thought it was very interesting. My only problem was they called for next steps, including a control group, and I hope they don't do that because I think that will be an unhelpful comparison to have someone who doesn't do it compared to someone who does do it. I think just seeking to understand its transferability into practice would be much more useful. Yeah, and I think as sort of a um, medical trainee curriculum uh certainly as a um, introduction to those topics i think that could be really useful because it's certainly not something we always cover particularly well um in when people are sort of concentrating on learning everything they can about the disease processes that they deal with and the pathways etc so i think it certainly has its place sounds good yeah and they got it published in academic medicine so uh who's to argue with that Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure, as always, to chat about uh, some articles that are coming up in the simulation literature. We look forward to more from the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, as well as our uh, traditional simulation journals and others. And just a reminder, we are trying to enhance our connections with the Simulcast community, so please do drop us a line, uh, give us a tag in a Twitter conversation, and uh, feel free to make a comment on the posts related to any of our podcasts. We would love to hear some thoughts, ideas, and comments, and uh, We're always happy to record a podcast on the basis of people's suggestions. But I hope you have a good rest of October, Ben. Absolutely. Same to you. I'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to Simulcast.